Hello and welcome to the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. My name is Joss Golden and I'm so happy that you're here. In this podcast series, I interview people who are passionate about parenting. We talk about many things to do with parenting and motherhood and explore the joys and challenges that we all face in our families. The aim of the podcast is to share more about aware parenting, to inspire us all on our parenting adventures, and to support us all to raise our children with more awareness, connection, and love. Welcome back to another episode of Aware Parenting Stories. This is part B of a conversation that I've enjoyed already with Naomi Aldort. This time I'm going to be talking to her about all things related to homeschooling, unschooling, natural learning, and so on. Naomi is the author of Raising Our Children, Raising Ourselves, which has been translated into 20 different languages. She supports parents and families all around the world. She has done a significant public speaking at conferences about homeschooling and about home education of our children. She has produced a set of CDs that explore homeschooling as part of a conference on rethinking education. And she supports parents, both those who are homeschooling and those who choose to send their children to school too. She homeschooled her own three children all the way through her education and has a wealth of wisdom to share with us. So thank you again so much for coming back on the podcast to talk about this topic that I know we're both very passionate about. Yes. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about how you ended up homeschooling your children? Was that always the plan? And and were you always approaching it from a sort of unschooling perspective? Or is that something you found yourself exploring as you went along? I started exploring it when I was 20 years old. (laughs) So before marriage, before children, I read A.S. Neal book, and about Summerhill, the democratic school. And I actually talk a lot in conferences specifically about democratic schools. So I read his books when I was young, 20, 21, whatever. And so it immediately was very, very clear to me that the idea of sitting kids behind desks for hours and hours a day and telling them what to do and ringing the bells on them you know, for duration of time and then testing them. Oh, my God, what an insult to human intelligence. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's humiliating. I mean, none of us like to be tested. So it was pretty clear to me. So when I was pregnant with my first one, uh, we lived in the Bay Area, which is San Francisco area, in a suburb. So immediately I told my husband, we need to see if we want to stay here based on what the possibilities of homeschooling or free schools or, you know, what the educational opportunities that totally respect the child are. And my exploration yielded that that was not a good location for that. And so when our first baby was a few months old, we already were on the search to move somewhere else. And we took, when he was four months old, we were on a few weeks trip along the West Coast, looking and arriving all the way to the Northwest as well. And then we did a second trip and a third before we actually decided to move here. So yeah, so I I would say even before having children, I was clear, but I didn't have details on how homeschooling goes. I knew about schools that are democratic, 
and the children run them and do whatever you know they want within a very um, democratic society of children. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know much about the homeschooling movement. So then I started reading John Holt was the the father of homeschooling. So I read his books and that's how it started. <laughs> well, and were you always clear from the beginning that you would do it in a way that was very free and allowed your children to dictate very much the directions that they were interested in, the things that they wanted to explore rather than to have a set curriculum? Yes, because from the beginning, I was rejecting schooling. Yeah. So why would I do schooling at home? And why would I ruin parent-child relationship and become the policeman of learning? Yeah. You know, because the moment you're policing your children and making sure that they learn, it's very hard, uh, much more difficult to keep the relationship on a tone that keeps us all free human beings if somebody is dominating. Mm. So, you know, it's like there's no, in my approach to parenting and learning, there's no domination of one over the other. There's protection of the bigger, the leader, uh, who has the bigger picture of what it is to be alive, their responsibilities uh, and protection and providing, but not domination. Mm. And those are different things. So, yes, it was clear from the beginning that I'm not going to tell my kids, you know, what what they should learn, if they should learn. I didn't teach them to read. I, I you know, just expose, don't impose. Mm. That's such it's, a powerful it, distinction, isn't it? Between Well, but that's what I always say also when I public speak is expose, don't impose. So you have a responsibility. This is not about neglect about you know sit back and your children can you know do whatever they want because that's not life that's not true and children do need to be be provided with opportunities to sort themselves out and prepare themselves for life and they generally do it in the teenage years in terms of specific purpose but play is the best preparation when they're children Play and arts, which is what they like. Sports, arts, using the body, using creativity. But they can do it in their own way. But I still need to expose them. They don't know art exists if I don't buy some paints and paper and an easel and or let them cover the walls mm. like a cave with their pictures. <laughs> we, we did not keep our walls white in the playroom. We had an big playroom and you can hang your pictures there you can paint on it whatever so I think the arts the knowledge is not so important can be learned in any age but arts and physical skills and communication skills and command of the body physical well-being and confidence music as part of the arts dance sports All of that you have to make available as well as the academics if the child is interested. So I had one more academic child and two musical ones and two very physical. Well, they were all also physical. You know, every child has everything Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be in tune, expose. 
But it's a very different approach, isn't it? Where you're one where you are facilitating opportunities for your children to to be exposed to different things um, in a way that's not a contrived learning opportunity, but just an exposure, and then allowing them to run with what what they feel called to run with, and to not even dip their toes into things that they're not interested in. Yes, and that's really important. What you're saying, what they're not interested in, because. A lot of homeschoolers and non-homeschoolers, because I, I have parents of kids who go to school too, they love to believe that they're allowing the freedom when the way they respond when the child has interest is, I have an opportunity to teach. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I, never, I don't do that. So the example starts in young ages, like, why is the butterfly on the flower? And a lot of parents will pursue a biology course, right? Or at least an hour lecture with going into the house and looking at books in in my time or now doing search on a computer, although I don't recommend that with young children, but whatever. And I say, don't do that. They only asked why the butterfly on the flower. You answer only that part because. He likes the colors and sucks the, the, the nectar. Oh, I see. So why does he, you know, then they may ask another question, what he does with it or, you know, and you answer only that. Why is it raining? To water the flowers and the trees so they'll grow. Also to answer in terms of what it does rather than a whole meteorology class yeah. about how the clouds and why is it raining to give us water and to give the plants water not as well how does it happen how does it come from the sky you give the shortest answer when it's really warm the water evaporates and then it becomes cloud you know, go to the kitchen right away and start boiling water and show how it becomes rain on the pot. You know, maybe they are interested. You can ask, would you like to see? Would you like to do an experiment and see how it becomes rain? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But you don't add more. You can ask a question and see if there's more interest, but don't always ask more questions. Only if that there is, you know, the guy's digging or the girl is digging for more. And other than that, just answer the questions. So it's not, it doesn't become a classroom ever. The child is really doing what they're interested in, but do expose to what exists in the world because otherwise they don't know. We went to concerts, to museums, to dance shows, to acrobatic shows, to theater in terms of entertainment, to museum, to art museum, to science museums, to activities with children, and on and on, and expose them even to some very good movies and history of movies. You know, my children are all versed in Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, forties. Those are phenomenal movies that they don't make anymore. So anyway, we, they grew up without TV, but. Every few months, we would see a movie that's really excellent or a video and see it a few times and talk about it and converse and act it out. And, you know, yeah. I think um, that's a really important point, isn't it? I think the two things that I 
noticed in myself more and more and managed to stop um, as I went on that just destroy learning. The first was not accepting my children's obvious signals when I was trying to describe something or explain something that they'd asked. And they'd obviously got to the point where they'd had enough. And yet I pushed on regardless because I saw it as a learning opportunity. And the other thing to ruin their passion for things was to jump in and start saying my son for example just loved listening to contemporary music lots of different genres but that's what he loved doing and then I would think oh great well if he likes that maybe I should do it organize a course for him at TAFE about music and you know just stop just you don't have to do that it's just such a powerful thing when you realize now we just have lots of conversations I provide lots of opportunities and then I get out of the way exactly yeah yeah exactly Travel is a great one. We did a lot of traveling, just going on trips. Yeah. And of course, that's been um, impossible for people recently. But yes, that was such a powerful learning opportunity to, to go visit places, especially as a family. And uh, yeah, yeah. We, we would do that and, and be with other people. And I think we didn't, the being with other families, the, it takes a village that we didn't have enough on our island. It's mm community and it's not so simple to do that yes but okay let's continue <laughs> I could go forever um so can you describe how you developed that trust how you saw learning happening naturally around you all the time and and how you just saw that unfolding without you having to contrive situations to get them to learn I never had that so I didn't have okay. to develop trust. Um, and also, when you never have that, then from the beginning, you're observing learners. They're unstoppable. Women are unstoppable. All they do from the moment they come out, all they do is learning. You see the four years old on their belly trying to crawl and trying to figure out this and touch this. It's all learning. They never stop. You know, whether they twirl things or they push a ball or they, you know, point at this, this, what is this, what is this? And they're learning the language and you read them a book and they tell you to read the same section over and over again and you're bored to death and they have the focus. No, read it again, read it again, read it again. One of my musical, two of them are musicians, uh, professional. And one of them used to sit on my lap already as a baby. And I had this thick book of easy classics that I used to play on the piano for him. And he very quickly knew which page is which piece. And if I and I tested it, I put it because I knew the pieces memorized by then. So I would put it on the wrong page and start playing because he would say, play this, go, mm, mm, mm. he didn't even speak yet. And I'd play a different piece and he would, ah! You know? <laughs> and he would have me play one piece 20 times, you know, like it's like it was Mozart and Bach and Beethoven. So <laughs> I could do that yeah. because if, if it was something for me less rich musically, it probably would be a lot harder. But the same with books, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people, not just in music, but in reading stories again, 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 this page again. And we're the ones, a lot of parents refuse and say, why do I have to read it again and again? It's like, ah, you have a, you know, keep him focused. Yeah. He's willing to 
to work hard at something. He wants to listen again and again. It's amazing. So the answer is I never had a doubt. And because I never had a doubt, I saw it happening. And I would say that without kindergarten or school, what you see in young children is 10 times faster development, not 10 times, I'm dramatizing, but a lot of things go a lot faster and others go slower. Like they're not, it's not dictated by a school or, you know, what they're supposed to do in a given time. So just like they talk at different times, my middle kid didn't talk till almost age three. They say Einstein didn't talk till he was four, you know. Some parents, if a child doesn't talk till three, will take them to a speech therapist. I didn't see any need for that. And when you say, how did you trust? It's like, I had no reason not to trust. The kid was communicating. He Every now and then he tried a word. And if it wasn't perfect, he would stop because mm. he heard very well. He's a musical kid. So then at a little before age three, one day he spoke Two languages, full sentences, no baby talk. You understood every word. That's his way, you know. He was just, the wheels were turning. There is no not learning. Or one father asked me in a workshop once, he said, I'm really worried about my daughter because the whole summer, to child who went to school, two months, two and a half months of summer break, right? But she's not using her brake very well. All day long, she's riding her scooter or her bike, what it was, around the walls of the house. Like the house would, you know, had some paved section. And she's just riding around and around and around all day long. And eventually, he found out that she was studying relativity. But he didn't have to. It doesn't have to be that soft, sophisticated. But she came home and she said she figure out if she's a little further from the wall, it moves slower, you know. And when she close to the wall, she noticed, you know, what speed and she changes her speeds. And she said, I remember my own one of my children turning bicycle upside down and turning the wheels at age like three, turning the wheels over and over again. And I had a relative who didn't understand what's happening. He says, like, why you let him waste his time like this? And my husband said to him, he's not wasting his time at all. <laughs> we don't know what he's learning while doing that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he was learning. He was too young to, to report. But, you know, he was learning how the mechanism worked. Mm-hmm. That's what makes sense to me with a bicycle upside down. So whatever they do is learning all their time. Like he said in his book, learning all the time. You don't have to sit in front of a desk and somebody else gives you some, excuse me, unnecessary nonsense. Yep. Like grammar and, you know, stuff that you can learn in two weeks when you're a grown up and be tortured when you're a child, uh, you know, or even the reading and arithmetic. I wasn't worried about anything. I never taught them to read. They they got to it on their own. Yeah. It's just such a different perspective, isn't it? And it can be quite um, difficult for people to understand that, that shift from, you know, just trusting that everything that our children are engaged in is, is deeply productive and significant for them in terms of their learning. And I remember hearing a beautiful story where, 
this uh, man was interviewed who's one of the leading entomologists in the world and he's got PhDs and he lectures left, right and centre and he, he's, he's the, the leading expert in the world on small insects. And he was saying how when he was at school, he just always got into trouble all the time and his school reports would say things like, oh, he's never going to amount to anything because he gets distracted even by a fly. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But you know that school does not exist historically for very long. So when we talk about the big shift, it's schooling that's the big shift. Uh, and and I, I don't mind the purpose of getting everyone educated because before school, there were gaps of education. But all the successful people before school who became in the academia were homeschooled, basically. That's, that's how they did it then. They had mentors and all kinds of stuff. But basically, so it wasn't exactly the unschooling philosophy. But school is a new thing. And I'm not sure the way we're doing it, it's not very successful because it's indoctrinating and controlling and taking children away from their own creative, innovative way of learning. Mm. And true learning is not something that occurs that somebody else can do to someone. Mm. You can't do learning for another any more than you can eat for another or sleep for another or breathe for another. They can do the learning. That's why I say expose, don't impose. Trust and wait. And don't take the school parameter of when a child should do what by age and impose it on your child. Because... I know children who learn to read at age 13, and you know them too, and they're not any different when a child who learned at age four, when you know them as grown-ups, you don't ask anybody, when did you learn to walk? When did you learn to talk? When did you learn to read? And it makes no difference. Some of our greatest geniuses started talking very late or started reading very late before we imposed age six, right? The magic six. Why six? It's different for each child. And each child learns to read in a different method when they invent the method. And inventing the method, the figuring out, just like they figure out talking, which is much more difficult than reading. How the magic to figure out the little things we do with our tongue and lips and structure of the mouth to produce specific sounds that have meaning, initially things, names, and then concepts and verbs. It's it's beyond belief that a child at two years old is doing that kind of study. What are we worrying about 22 letters that are put in certain order to match those sounds that they already figured out? It's nothing. And the process of inventing, the other problem with teaching, I have an article in a magazine, I think it was published in Australia too. There's an article about learning to read later is better. Why? But, and in that article, I explained that the result reading is the least important. When the children invent the method just like they do for speaking of how to learn to read, that's when the brain develops. They're inventing, they're figuring out how to read. When they go to school, they're being taught 
So they're going through the hoops of other brains, of these adults who made up this method. They're just following instructions. They're sharpening the follow instruction part of the brain, not the invent and find a solution and be resourceful part of the brain. So I have three sons who each learned to read in a different method. One of them, I don't, I didn't even know when he learned to read because I discovered it later and he didn't remember by then. I'm guessing a little bit that he did it through writing. And one did it, you know, at different ages and different methods. So they invented it. It's the same with the math. Now, one of my kids was never into math. And I, I never forced it, never did it. Doesn't matter. He learned to analyze musical chords before he learned to add numbers. And another one was a math genius and figured out how to multiply at, at age six and could multiply big numbers and add big numbers. And, and it was like, like this for him. But I didn't teach it to him. I just noticed that he was doing it. It's such a different perspective, isn't it, to have those two things, really. One is to celebrate and recognize the uniqueness of each of our children in terms of what they're interested in, the timings of how they learn things, and also the processes, like you say, of, of how they learn things. Uh, and the other is to see the value of, of all the learning that's going on. And I think the school has such a narrow definition of what learning is, and we tend to get a bit, a bit caught up in that, that somehow academic learning is more important than anything else. But actually, when we embrace this way of learning with our children, we're really seeing that everything that they're doing is of value and that they're learning from every opportunity. And often the things they learn most from different experiences aren't what we think they're going to learn at all and certainly aren't what we're even providing the opportunity for them to learn. There's other things that they're learning that are of more value for that particular child in that particular moment in their life. And it's just it's a totally different way of looking at it. Exactly. And it's really important to remember, I just wrote myself a note that I don't want to forget. A lot of parents tell me about homeschoolers. You know, homeschoolers often in America win uh, spelling contests. And when my youngest son was on TV as a, a musical prodigy, there were four kids on the program, geniuses in, supposedly in different subjects. They were all homeschooled. So sometimes people tell me, well, you know, you can homeschool kids who are that talented or geniuses. And I tell them when you homeschool them or when you don't suppress their learning with school routines, they are all geniuses. So the genius is the result of homeschooling. It's not that I homeschooled because they were geniuses, they could do it. It's because I didn't suppress their learning and thwart their, their innovative inner path. They have the blueprint. I don't have it. I don't know how their brain operates. So anytime you teach a child, you take them away in that moment that you teach. And that's a lot of hours in the school. Every moment you teach a child, you take them away from what they would have learned in that moment on their own. Wow, that's a really that's a really profound thing to say. Yeah, it is because we can't take them back to the ten years old and what he would have done in that hour if we didn't stuff his head with grammar, which doesn't matter. You know, my children never learned grammar; they simply read books. 
when they had to pass tests to go to university, they had no problem with grammar because it's just logic. Also, they learned the names of the things, the subject, object, verb, whatever. And it made sense. They said it's all logical. The same with math. My kid, the one who never did any math, when he wanted to go to college, he needed to uh, to pass tests. All the academic stuff can be taught in two months. He studied a couple of months. My other child studied three weeks to do the GD tests and, and passed everything in good grades. But the first one, he never studied math before. So he bought the book. I never even saw the, the books that my children studied to get into universities. Just gave them the credit card to buy it. So he said, Mom, I looked in the middle of the book. I read the instructions. I solved the problem. And I said, did you check the end of the book? He said, yes, I did. And I did the problem. The instruction tells you exactly how to do it. It's very simple. You know, he was 18 years old. And my the kid that did it in three weeks, he was 15 years old. He went to college. A lot of unschoolers and homeschoolers go to college earlier because school actually slows down the learning. Try to teach children of the same age who are limited in the same way in a classroom all together and force them to learn what they're not interested in. Maybe a couple of kids are, and most of them are not. That makes it very, very slow. The whole math can be taught in a few weeks. In the democratic school, there is a story about this group of children, different ages, everything. They came to this physicist, one of the teachers uh, of the school and the founders of the school, and said, we want a math class. And he told them, he first he wanted to be sure the parents weren't behind it. Because <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't very, you know, most parents, oh, good, they want math. Nothing like that. Are you sure? Are you sure it wasn't your parents or your father? Okay, they convinced him they're serious. So he told them, here are my conditions. No modern books with all these nicey, nice game colors. We're going to use an old book that actually teach the whole math, the whole elementary school material, middle school. I don't remember what it was. And then the other one is... Everybody must do all the work that I give. So you can be strict when they chose freely to be in the class. So you all have to do the homework. You all have to come in time to the the class every week. They agreed. In six weeks, he covered the whole material of school. I think of up to middle school. And, And somebody, a school teacher friend asked him, how did you do it so fast? It takes us 12 years or however, you know, seven years. He said, you know, it was their will and nobody missed a class. <laughs> you know, everybody was just like, they wanted to be there and no games. No, he just took an old book. And he said, when kids want to learn, it's it's the material they teach over 12 years. My youngest son said the same thing when I took him to the mainland to do the GED test. And he passed science at a 97% of what kids at 18 after all of high school. I said, how do you explain it? He said, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing for 12 years. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it really comes down to intrinsic motivation, doesn't it? 
Yes, and authenticity and being interested. He wanted to do the tests in order because he wanted to go to that university, the best music school. So he did it. And the other one just decided to go to university. And my third one went to the Running Start program where you go in high school years to a college. So he had a different path. Each one of them and their own way. And learning social relationship. You know, school destroys social skill. They think it's the opposite. Oh, how will they learn social skill? We should talk about that. Yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> that's that's always the question. How will they learn socialization? <laughs> well, they learn a human being learns social skill by being social in a social setting, which is society, not a dictatorship where one bigger person dictates for 30 kids of the same age sitting behind desks obeying order. What is that? What do you call that? Not social, not society. Not only that, in a classroom like this, teacher asks question, you know the answer. The other kid is being called on. What do you wish for that kid? To fail. That's the, the that competitive edge. Who will impress the teacher with the right answer? Me, 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 me. Oh, no, he's asking her. I hope she gives the wrong answer so I get to impress the teacher. You know, it's like, it's training to have them f- to, for the others to fail. And that's just one of the many anti-social, but the whole, but that's the basis. It's competitive. Who is going to help who? Mm-hmm. They're all the same age. They have the same uh, blind spots and inabilities. They can't help each other. In the democratic school, it's age four till 19. No classrooms. They do whatever they want unless they create a classroom. Everybody votes every week. They run this. It's a society, democratically run society. Teachers are voted on whether they're hired by the kids every year. And the justice system is made of six kids and one adult. And anybody have problem with another child, they can file up a complaint and bring it to the meeting. It's amazing. Yeah. It's it's real life, and kids can do that, and they mature from that. But it for homeschoolers, they just they engage with other people all the time. Not they're not afraid of adults. They don't end up like the teenagers who come out of high school when they see an adult in the corridor of the school, they lower their eyes. You know, <laughs> while the homeschoolers talk to adults the same as you know, like anybody. I have a wonderful story for you. When my oldest was six years old, we had to meet with two ladies to give them something. We didn't even know them. Something related to my family. doesn't matter. And we met them in some coffee house in a shopping mall. And I had my two-years-old with me and my six-years-old with me. And we sit together around a table. They're having a cup of coffee or whatever. And... My son starts talking to them and they ask him about school and he says that he doesn't go to school and they start a conversation. So I thought I will go do my errands since they're, you know, busy, my son and the two old ladies, because he didn't have any distinction of age who he can socialize with. Right. So I take my two years old, do a couple of things, come back in 20 minutes And one of the ladies tell me, you know, 
he is very eloquent and can really speak well. And he really convinced us about homeschooling. I have only one question. What about socializing? <laughs> and I say, what about it? <laughs> so it's it's a funny story, but he, he always talked and all my kids felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I see homeschoolers everywhere with all ages. I mean, my youngest son performed as a soloist with orchestra at age 10, you know, dealing with a conductor, with a whole orchestra that he said felt like a herd of elephants behind him because so loud. And he's with his little cello and piano. He did two pieces and he was interviewed for the radio. You know, he was actually very shy. I was not, the the talking part wasn't easy for his nature, but playing the music, dealing with the conductor, nothing. Shaking hands, doing the whole thing. He didn't teach him. It's like he saw concerts. You know, they look around and they do what they want to do. Mm. They're a human being. They're not, you don't have to shape them and turn them into an image of our dream, which is an ego trip anyway. But the school definitely create that competitive, mm. antisocial. Uh, they're really set against each other. There's no wonder that there's all this bullying and, and hate. And it's not very nice. You know, there are children who have some wonderful friends in school, but it's usually some friends and others, you know, it's not so good. But all in all, they're not learning social skills because the structure that they live in every day in the school is not socially healthy. Yeah, absolutely. In the democratic school, the teenagers are helping four years old all the time, Mm -hmm. naturally, parenting and caring for others. Yeah, yes, absolutely. They're too little for me. My friends are my age or older, which in school. I don't want to play with somebody younger. Yes, it's totally different, isn't it? Very different. So what would you say, like just as a a final question, what would you say would be the outcome of of raising children this way? I'm I'm talking specifically about homeschooling now, like what and unschooling. What do you think are the most important outcomes of this way of being? It's what I said in the first interview we did. It's staying rooted in oneself, being yourself, pursuing yourself, whatever it is, whether you want to be a shoemaker or an orchestra conductor or a scientist is irrelevant because if you are somebody you don't want to be because you're just pleasing your parents, then you're going to be in depression very quickly. Yeah. You know, and that's we, we have lots of depression that way. And it's, you know, it becomes like people ask me about, I have this story about this uh, f- very famous pianist when I was young. I don't know if he's still alive, but he performed in the town that I used to live in where the university, the graduate school that I was in. And um, somebody told him, a musician, that he's holding back, that his pianistic ability is very good but there seems like he's not full out with his ability and recommended to him to talk to my friend Alois Ristad who was you know I I teach I was influenced by her approach which 
totally different way of teaching, also bringing out what's in the child, in the student. So they suggested to him to talk to her because she coached also advanced students and musicians. So she had a session with him and I, for confidentiality, I don't want to mention his name because even if he's not alive, it's not fair. She said to me, she was a very close friend of mine, and she told me that what he discovered in the couple of hours of working with her is that when he's on stage, his mother is still with him on stage, imagination. So he is still pleasing his mother, which is very restrictive. So, and, and, and he told her that his mother made sure he practiced and was very, very hard on him and very pushy and, and always, you know, corrected his mistakes and critiqued his playing, etc. When I tell this story, you know, the punchline actually comes in the reaction of the audience. There's always somebody in the audience raises their hand and saying, yeah, but would he have been this successful pianist if his mother didn't do that? And I say, if he wasn't going to be without her doing that, then he wouldn't, and that would be better. He would be himself. Mm-hmm. Because if he's being that, and that's not his path, then that's tragedy. Yeah. And if he was going to be a pianist anyway, then he would have been a better pianist. Yeah. Uh, the, without the pushing. So... Yeah, so I think that that story demonstrates quite well that at the end of the day, even, you know, there there are things children do that require, like music practice, that require a lot of discipline. And I'm not saying that parents can't find a way to support them. But what I did with my musicians is I asked them, do you need me to support you? If it's already six in the afternoon and you have a practice, do you want me to remind you? Um, you know, like yeah. it wasn't always easy, but we acknowledged that it isn't easy, you know. And also, they were always free to quit. I told them from day one when you take lessons, then just like with this math lesson in the, in the democratic school, then there is a commitment. I will write the notes so you don't have to waste time in the lesson. They didn't need them, that, that was just me. <laughs> I always thought they would need them, but they didn't. Anyway, I, I will pay for the lessons. I drive you to the lesson. I wait. I pick you up. You know, we do the whole thing. But it's your job to be ready for each lesson and to, you know, to use it to the fullest. But anytime you decide you want to quit, you need a new teacher, you want to change instrument, just let me know. And one of them kept quitting and coming back and changing instruments. And, and the other one is like, <laughs> so and each one ended up in the profession very typical to how they were as children yeah it's so liberating isn't it just to allow our children to become who they are meant to be yes yeah. yes and it's very I think people often don't understand and it's really I just want to stress before we end that freedom is not license it doesn't mean child hurts other children do whatever they want all the time it's life is life but when they're free then they're stimulating themselves all the time but you have to expose they need to know what's available in life 
And yeah, you may need to pay for teachers to support them this way or that way, to provide an instrument. I mean, their financial costs are physical. There is time. There are things they want to do with you uh, to participate. Like I accompanied my musicians. Uh, my my oldest son used to act and you know practice his memorization out loud in the car. And sometimes I acted too, and he drilled my lines for me because he used to know the whole show, memorized everybody's lines. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's that freedom doesn't mean license. It doesn't mean, you know, a lot of people just assume that, but children are self-disciplined. That's the secret. See, when they're free, not as in neglect or license, but free within a structure of human beings living together and seeing the model of interest and exposure and being engaged in life, they have amazing discipline. That's why they have you read the same page over and over again. <laughs> they're memorizing it or they're enjoying it or they're getting something out of it, but they don't stop. When my kids used to practice by ear still, just playing Bach by ear on the piano, midnight and they just wouldn't get off we didn't we didn't insist on that's a great advantage of homeschooling you don't have to get up early so you don't have to fight with the kids about bedtime and i see what people go through about bedtime we didn't have bedtime <laughs> yeah yeah and that's part of the freedom as well of course isn't it Oh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and all your wisdom about it all. I will put your websites and the links to the different things that you share about this um, in the show description. It's just been such a pleasure talking to you and, and listening to your, your... It's lovely being with you. Yeah, very good questions that I think were keeping us both very awake and alive. I mean, it's not late It's late. <laughs> it's late. It's late in Australia, but it's 11.30 for me. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much for your time, Naomi. I look forward to talking to you again. Say again how to get any information, the website. Yes, please do. Yeah, so the website is naomialdo.com or authenticparent.com, not parenting, parent or authenticchild.com. You can sign up online for sessions if you want to talk to me on Zoom. There is information, there are articles, lots of videos uh, some products, audios, uh, and um, how to sign up also for the family intensive or create workshops or small groups. It's all on the website. So thank you so much. I'll put links to that so that people so that you're easy to find. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Aware Parenting Stories. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more, please visit my website, www.awareparenting.com.au and follow me on social media at Aware Parenting with Joss. I wish you much connection and love on your parenting adventures. Mm -hmm.